0: I was uh, once a a made member of the Colombo family in New York, one of the five uh, Mafia La Cousin Oster families. And understand, in New York, there were so many of us where we met people. You know, we just knew how to deal with people. We knew how to get around people, we knew how to make them our friends, put their arms around them, get them to do our bidding. And they wanted to be around us, you know, we didn't have to chase them. And that extended into all walks of life, from the White House right down to the guy on the street. So, you know, after a while, um, they come to us and, you know, maybe they need a few extra bucks. And they trusted us and we started to play the game.
1: Which sport specifically were you involved in?
0: It really crossed all sports lines. I mean, we took bets. We got involved with players and personnel. So it wasn't any one particular
1: sport. To your knowledge, has the Mafia had influence on fixing games in these sports for the past 30 years? Baseball, basketball, football, tennis? Yes. And the best way to fix a basketball game, get a referee. 100%. And you just need one? Just need one. In Tim Donaghy's book, Personal Foul, he claims that you guys had a few off-the-record conversations and that you had two NBA referees on your payroll in the 90s. Is that true? Yes. And just to confirm, neither of these refs were Tim Donahue. Correct. In professional basketball, were games determined by the players, the refs, or the wise guys? I'm Tim Livingston. This is Whistleblower. Episode 2, Out of Bounds. All right,
2: let's do this thing. Let's do it. We're rolling. My name is Tim Donaghy, and on July 28, 2008, I was sentenced to federal prison for betting on games I refereed.
1: So I'm with Tim Donaghy. I should probably tell you how I got here. Remember this phone call? tim what's going on
2: hey just want to give you a quick buzz i know uh for a while you've been interested in doing this podcast thing that you uh wanted to work on and uh i just started to think about it if you're still interested i think uh now will be a good time
1: And that's how I got here, to Sarasota, Florida, where Tim Donahue currently resides. When Donahue agreed to do the podcast, my team and I scheduled the first opportunity to meet, and now I'm sitting face-to-face with the most infamous referee in NBA history. A lot of these people aren't going to know who you are. Take us through the earliest days to who you are now.
2: Uh, you know. Grew up in Howardtown, Pennsylvania, went to Cardinal Howard High School, Villanova University. After college, uh, started the referee and worked my way up to become an NBA basketball referee. Unfortunately, I started to gamble on uh, uh, the golf course, gamble playing cards, uh, running down to the casinos and gambling and and betting on college and, and professional football games and eventually spilled over to betting on NBA games and then NBA games I officiated.
1: I rented a house for the next few days, and I'm sitting with Donahue in the backyard, trying to get him to loosen up around a bunch of people he doesn't know. He pulled up in a new Range Rover, not the big one, the small one, but it's nice. He's dressed well, and it seems like for all that he's been through, Tim Donahue is doing just fine. I'm hoping that my friendship with Donahue will make him feel comfortable enough to truly open up and not just repeat his company lines. I'm hoping to get his full, uncensored story so your average NBA fan, does he or she know the true story? You know, I don't think so. I think people
2: think that I was out there fixing games and doing things with the whistle to make sure star players went to the bench. I don't think they realize how the NBA had a major influence in what they wanted the referees to call on a given night. And I took that information, knowing that the referee crew was going to go out there and and do certain things and teams were at advantages and disadvantages. You know, the NBA game is more of a form of entertainment. It's not really a true athletic competition. And I think once I got to come to understand that,
1: you know, I, I was better suited to be a ref in the NBA. To hear a former NBA referee say that the NBA was entertainment rather than a true athletic competition? That's like telling a kid Santa Claus isn't real.
2: I mean, there was a situation with Michael Jordan. It's in Philly, they're playing on the road. He does a spin move on the baseline and we just had come from our referee camp and they wanted this spin move taken out of the game because they felt like it was a blatant travel. He did it dunked the ball, I waved it off and called a travel violation on him, and 20,000 people booed me. And there was a timeout called, and Phil Jackson rushed me, and Michael Jordan rushed me and said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? You get the same training tape plays as I do. They want that call to travel. And they looked at me, and Phil Jackson said real arrogantly, they may want that call to travel. And then he pointed at
1: Michael Jordan. and They said, but they don't want that called on him a rule is a rule, right? In basketball, not exactly. There's so much contact in every play that a referee could call a foul in almost every possession. Donahue's anecdote about Jordan raises the issue of referee bias and subjective enforcement of the rules. What constitutes a foul? Most of the calls in the NBA exist in a gray area. It's never black or white. Ultimately, the referees have the ability to call everything or nothing, which gives them a lot of power. You remember the first game you bet on? NBA? No. no. I just remember, um, you know, Jack and Cannon
2: had the Daily News. One day I was over at the country club getting ready to golf. I'd just come from home and looked at the master schedule of referees, and uh, he flipped me the Daily News with the lines in the paper and said, you know, pick me some winners. And I rattled off three games to him. And, you know, the next day he called me laughing, you know, joking around saying, is it that easy? And I just said, yeah. How did you win? Three out of three.
1: Who was Jack and Cannon?
2: Jack and Cannon was a guy that, you know, I played golf with three or four days a week. He was a guy that when we first started to gamble, he'd put the bets in through the bookie. And, uh, you know, we teamed up and, and we made plays and, and
1: he placed the bets and, and kind of left me out of it. Jack and Cannon isn't affiliated with organized crime. He's not a professional gambler either. He's an insurance salesman in the Delaware County area. Kincannon has never commented publicly on the NBA betting scandal. Here's how Donahue and Kincannon started betting on NBA games.
2: You know, I think it's just a situation where I love to gamble out on the golf course, uh, golfing, playing cards in the locker room, running in the casinos, uh, and, you know, eventually just spilled over to the betting college football, pro football. And eventually that day when he came to me with the Daily News, you know, the NBA, and then and certain things happen, or another referee said something to me, and. You know, I thought, oh, wow, this team's gonna be put in an advantage or a disadvantage. I started passing that information along to them.
1: Can you estimate your winning percentage during those years? I think that we we won, you know, somewhere around 80% of the time. If winning 80% of picks sounds like a high percentage, that's because it is. The best sports gamblers in the world only won 55 to 58% of their bets. Imagine winning four out of every five blackjack hands The only way that's possible is if you know which cards are going to be dealt. Donahue claims that his betting success relied on inside information. NBA referees are a tight fraternity. Donahue knew most of his fellow officials well. And according to him, his picks were based on which crew was assigned to which game. If referee A was going to be in Houston, bet on the Rockets, because that ref loved Yao Ming. If referee B was in Minnesota, bet against the Timberwolves because he hated Kevin Garnett's attitude. By understanding referee biases, Donahue says he was able to look at the betting lines in the New York Daily News and win 80% of his picks. All right, but how do you actually make a pick? Before we get there, can we change the music? There we go. The most important thing for a non-gambler to note is that in sports betting, the house wins as soon as you place a bet. A sportsbook's goal is to get even money on both sides. So if you're betting on one side, somebody else is betting the other side. The sportsbook takes its cut, also known as the vig or the juice, on every bet. So as long as the bets are even on both sides, the sportsbook makes a profit. A betting line or a spread is how sportsbooks keep the bets even. The line is how many points a team is expected to win or lose by. Here's an example. If the Knicks are four point favorites against the Celtics, the Knicks are expected to win the game by four points. In this example, if you place a bet on the Knicks and they win the game by only three points, you lose your bet. If you place a bet on the Knicks and they win by five points or more, you win your bet. Four
3: points, you get your money back.
1: So Imperioli, who you
3: picking? Well, I'll tell you who I'm not picking, Tim, the fucking Celtics. I'm putting my money on the Knicks. So you're probably wondering, Imperioli, how are you gonna place that bet? Well, I could go to a bookie, an actual person who'll take my money, then pay me in cash. But these guys are, not surprisingly, going extinct. In states where betting is legal, like the great state of New Jersey, I could walk into a casino, place a bet online. It's that easy. But what I'll probably do, what most people do is bet online at a digital sports book. Some of these sites are headquartered in the US, but most are in Asia, Europe, Central America, and the Caribbean. These books are completely unregulated. The ex con from Miami who started it doesn't even know how much money he's making. Online sports books became more prevalent during Donahue's era and rule the roost today, but pre internet sports betting was controlled by the wise guys. And when the mob bet big, it wasn't because they had a hunch or because they loved the Knicks. It meant they had a sure thing.
1: I sat down with Michael Franzese, who ran a large-scale bookmaking operation as a made man in the Colombo crime family. He explained how deep the Mafia's ties went when it came to game fixing in professional sports. Which sports specifically were you involved in?
0: Well, I was, um, you know, I had a bookmaking operation. We had a number of bookmakers that were working for me, so it really crossed all sports lines. I mean, we took bets. We got involved with players and personnel, and. Uh, So it wasn't any one particular sport, it was all of them.
1: It was wherever you had an in? Yeah. But undoubtedly, based on your experience, you would consider yourself an expert in the realm of game fixing. I guess so, yes. Can you go into any sort of detail about how your relationship with those referees worked?
0: Well, I'm not gonna mention names, but um, listen, in our gambling operation, it was all about the line. It's, it's not about who wins or lose, it's about the line. And so if you have an NBA referee, um, the NBA uh, basketball game's the easiest game to work with. you got five guys on the court, and the referee controls the game. So if you got a ref working with you that can move the point spread to your advantage, that's huge. You know, in the gambling business, that's tremendous. And really, that's how it worked. You know, you had a referee that was willing to, a game in the Lakers, keep Kobe Bryant on the bench for a little bit longer than he should be out there, so he can't, uh, he can't cover the spread uh, It's very valuable.
1: So, if you had to fix a game, would you go after the star player or the referee?
0: I'd rather have the referee. Well, again, it's all about the spread. And so, you know, a referee on every play, you know, he can call a foul or he don't have to call a foul. And that's what dictates the, the outcome of the game in many, many ways. So if you need to gain a few points, you bring a player to the foul line from the opposing team and you're going to gain a few points, you know. And same token, if you want to lose a few, you put their best foul shooter on the bench for a couple of points and for a couple of minutes. I mean, it's, it's really so easy when a ref is working with you. And who's gonna, yeah, they'll get mad at him, they'll question the call, but that happens all the time anyway. So if the referee is smart, and obviously it's it's his ass on the line, he's gonna be smart. He just does his thing and moves on. And uh, who's gonna know?
1: How, do, how did you pay the referees? Was it just a flat fee based like per game? Yeah, they get paid in
0: cash. Some of them had debts that they, they paid off that way. And others made money along with us. Yeah, we paid them. You know, if you're going to ask me, I, I am—I question every game and almost every call just by nature because I know the way it goes. Uh, and I certainly question garbage points at the end. That's
1: that's where the, thats where the money gets made. Yeah. So did you know a lot of referees who are living that life or gambling on other sports or in some form? Referees and players, yeah.
0: And, and league personnel.
1: Were they gambling through you guys, through your bookies?
0: Well, remember, back at that time, uh, if you wanted to gamble, you had to gamble through a bookmaker.
1: You forgot that. It's not
0: that. like it is today. Yeah,
1: Forgot that. So, the shady online gambling sites did exactly. not exist.
0: And every bookmaker that was that could cover a bet was involved with us.
1: How much money were you moving behind a referee tip?
0: Oh, God knows. I mean, you got to understand, we had so many bookmakers out there. I mean, the numbers were big, really big. In the millions? Oh, yeah.
1: Absolutely. According to Franz Zies, who alleges his bookmaking operation employed multiple NBA referees, fixing an NBA game wasn't only easy, it was virtually undetectable. Because you were playing against the line, a referee could manipulate a game for 47 of 48 minutes, and if it was still close at the end, he could secure the pick with garbage points. Franzis alleges that his refs, if need be, would call a ton of fouls at the end of a game, leading to extra free throws, aka garbage points. The team that was winning the game would still win the game, but the bet would fall on the right side of the line. Nobody would have any idea the game had been fixed, and why would they? It all happened within the rules, which begs the question, do you need to cheat to fix a basketball game? Or can you fix a game without making one technically incorrect call? Here's what Donnie, he had to say about fixing versus manipulating.
2: They're very similar, but I think fixed is you, you're going out there with the agenda that you're going to uh, do everything you can and make up fictitious calls or just totally do things that aren't within the rules. But I think manipulating is within the rules. It's not wrong calls, but it's just calls that you all of a sudden decide to
1: enforce but a good referee can manipulate the game within the rules.
2: Sure. I mean, I think uh, any chance you got to help a player or hurt a player, you know, based on your relationship with that player, within the rules, you could do it.
1: This is a really important distinction. According to Donahue, fixing is when a ref is making incorrect calls, and manipulating is when a ref is not making incorrect calls. In both instances, however, a ref is influencing the game. But whether he's cheating depends on whether the calls are technically correct, manipulating, or technically incorrect. Fixing. The FBI watched all your games. Did, what did they find after watching all of your games that you bet on?
2: They, they found that they, they didn't feel that I was fixing games. Of course, the NBA did an investigation and felt that I wasn't fixing games either. But, you know, that was in their best interest to say that. But when you have the FBI Uh, digging in and and coming back and saying, you know, they felt like all the calls were legitimate. I think that uh, that was one reason why Phil Scott of the FBI kind of supported me in a a way uh, even though I did something wrong knowing that the way the NBA conducted business, there was uh, some things that weren't on the up and up.
3: According to Donahue, he was gambling on everything under the sun except for NBA games in the years preceding 2003. Then, Starting in 03, he partnered with a friend, Jack Concannon, who began placing bets on NBA games handpicked by Donahue. Things were going great until certain people caught wind of the scheme. Pro gambler Jimmy Baba Batista, who knew Donahue from high school, was one of those people. Now, Batista was a professional gambler, but his specialty was betting on games, not picking games. He sat in a war room filled with screens and placed bets for the industry's biggest sports bettors all around the world. To approach the corrupted ref, Batista recruited their mutual friend and Donahue's closest buddy, Tommy Martino, to set up a meeting. Now, Donahue had been betting on NBA games for years before that initial meeting, which took place on December 12, 2006 at the Marriott Hotel in Philadelphia. But Donahue claims that at this meeting, Batista threatened his family to get him involved. Batista denies this and says that Donahue was a willing participant. Either way, a deal was made that took the scheme from small time to the big leagues. There was only one problem. Batista was addicted to cocaine and pills and had gotten greedy. He started betting and losing his clients' money. So by the time Donahue came along, Batista was in debt, desperate, and bound to fuck it all up. Here's Donahue describing that fateful meeting with Batista and Tommy Martino.
2: Marriott in Philadelphia, and uh, Tommy brings him down, not knowing that Batista was going to squeeze me, joking around, having a lot of fun. Of course, Tommy's on the phone from time to time, uh, going to the bathroom leaves me and Batista there uh, by ourselves, and he flat out says to me, hey, Tim, you know, we're gonna continue to get these picks. If, if not, you, you could be exposed to the NBA uh, for what you've been doing in the past in a non-little subtle way. And, and Tim, by the way, you don't want anyone visiting your wife and kids in Florida, do you? Let's just do this. So, you know, that's how he got me to get on board very quickly and understand that, you know, this was something that wasn't gonna go away. So I, I jumped on board with him and was hoping at the end of this year, or that year in 2007, that it was over and we were never going to do it again. And I was going to keep my job and never bet on anything ever again. Not golf, cars, nothing. That was it. It was done. But of course, that's not what happened. It was discovered over a game being a wiretap and, and the rest, uh, you know, his history. It, it kind of made the news a little bit.
1: If you would have kept this small, and just worked with Jack and Cannon. just worked with one person, never told anybody, would you still be reffing in the NBA today?
2: Um, you know, hey, if I could turn back time and say woulda, coulda, shoulda, I wouldn't have done it at all. But unfortunately, I can't do that.
1: After years of betting compulsively, including four years of betting on the NBA, the idea that Tim Donahue was going to stop gambling after the 06-07 season seems a little hard to believe. At this point, sitting in the chair across from Donahue, I don't believe I'm getting the full, uncensored story. Do you remember how much money you made during your time with Tommy and Baba?
2: It was around $30,000. I think that's the uh, big misconception, and, and that was a big holdup with uh, you know, the prosecution. Batista's is going around telling people he gave me $250,000, when in fact, I never saw him again after that first game. Uh, he has the amount of games wrong, he says there was 40-some games, but there wasn't, and, and you, all you have to do is look at my schedule and see that from that time span, I only refereed 30 games. So uh, it, there's a lot of inaccuracies that if he you know, had half a brain, he would see that they're something that's very researchable.
1: Do you remember how much money you made during the run with Jack and Cannon from 0-3. You know, I
2: think with everything together over the three and a half years, it was somewhere around $100,000, I thought.
1: This is the story that Donahue tells over and over again. He bet on his own games, but he didn't fix them. And a majority of his bets were on other referees' games, games where his inside knowledge allowed him to pick winners against the spread. And over the course of four seasons, He says that he only took home $100,000, despite having the ability to win 80% of his picks, despite having the ability to print money. I spoke with Sean Patrick Griffin, professor and department head of criminal justice at the Citadel, who researched the gambling side of the scandal to write the book, Gaming the Game. And the data tells a very different story. The
4: most common misconceptions concerning the NBA betting scandal are, first and foremost, that Donaghy simply bet on games as opposed to influencing them. That's the most important, I would argue. This is one of the largest scandals in U.S. sports history, and there's so much misinformation out there. And I've always said, there are plenty of things we're never going to know that are he said, he said situations. But in this story, there are plenty which are not, and let's at least get those correct. The research relies mostly on what we call primary source documents, meaning FBI files, court documents. In this modern era, people can track all sorts of data, and professional gamblers will oftentimes employ sophisticated uh, statistical analyses, uh, computer models and all that stuff. Well, for the NBA betting scandal, I got access to all that stuff.
1: Griffin got access to the gamblers who were betting, the sportsbook managers who were taking the bets, and even some of the actual betting accounts, all the data required to solve these mysteries. What Griffin was ultimately looking for was betting line movement. When a sportsbook moves a betting line, it signals two things. One, a lot of money is being bet on that game. If the numbers aren't big, the sportsbook doesn't care. And the second thing, which is most important, it means that a lot of money is coming in on one team. This compels the sportsbook to adjust the line to encourage more bets on the other team Remember, the goal of the sports book is to get even money on both sides of a betting line.
4: And what the data show is clear. The betting lines move far more on the games that Donaghy officiated than those he didn't. And there was a reason for that. Those are the games that Jimmy Batista, the pro gambler, was betting millions of dollars on, and that's what was causing the lines to move. Tim Donaghy has been very shrewd in how he has convinced a large segment of the public that he didn't fix games. If you listen to what he says, he says a handful of staples all the time. Number one, he always says he did not make incorrect calls to influence game outcomes. That might seem trivial. That's said for a reason that he was calling correct calls, technically correct calls, that other people either don't call or don't call nearly with the frequency which he did. And there's, there's an irony there, by the way, because the NBA themselves said that he was one of their highest rated officials and was in the top tier when it came to the number of calls made. So if that's how you're fixing games, they're not gonna get discovered. <laughs> but Donaghy, when it comes to how he's influenced people to thinking that he didn't fix games, He'll always say, the FBI and the NBA each conducted thorough reviews and concluded that I didn't fix games. Well, first of all, the NBA is on record as saying, we absolutely did not conclude that. And the FBI, far from concluding he didn't fix games, the FBI didn't look. And that's the fundamental problem. You need only look at the words of Supervisory Special Agent Phil Scala, who Donaghy loves quoting all the time. And he flat out says, we fought with Donaghy a lot about that. We rejected the idea that you could possibly have money riding on the outcome of a game in which you have an opportunity to influence and not have it influence your, your behavior. So they never, certainly never concluded that. But no one ever points any of these things out to him while he's live on their air. And the public is unfortunately left to hear, well, yeah, I guess if the FBI concluded and the NBA concluded, and they didn't.
1: What Griffin is saying is that while the FBI did not conclude, that Donaghy fixed games, they also never concluded that he didn't fix games. For reasons we'll get into later in the podcast, the FBI never had an opportunity to complete its investigation into the NBA betting scandal. So if Donahue was smart, could the scheme have gone on in perpetuity? I think Donahue
4: was smart enough that the scandal wouldn't have been discovered if not for Jimmy Batista screwing this up for everybody, as he would tell you by the time the scandal was ending in the spring of 2007, had a major prescription pill problem, was betting all over the place. A bunch of people by that point were told by him about the scandal. Tommy Martino, their mutual friend and co-conspirator, he had told other people, including another gambler. And that's why the betting lines were flying all over the place. And that's why the mobsters up in New York caught wind of this and were making money on it. If not for all that chaos, What Donaghy was doing was so shrewd, it never was gonna get detected by the NBA, and it wasn't gonna get detected by the FBI. There was nothing to detect, it was genius.
1: Can you quantify as best you can how much money was likely moving from 2003 to 2007?
4: Identifying how much money was being bet on these games is always hard, it's a murky world. I, I was able to document by doing a forensic analysis of Batista's betting records, there were occasions where he was betting a million dollars or two on Donaghy's games himself. That alone is its own number, but then beyond that, we know that there are other people who were betting as much as they could. The number we know is in the hundreds of millions over the four seasons that were bet on this. Tim Donaghy did not know the logistics of how his bets were being placed, nor where they were being placed, by whom, or how much. Here's the thing. If inside information did account for Tim Donkey's betting success, it wouldn't matter if he was officiating a game or not. Well, then that's a problem where all of the evidence shows all the bets were on his games, where all of his co-conspirators say that, all the pro gamblers say that, all the betting line data says that. The bets were only on his games. There's not a single person who says that other than him.
1: So Donahue maintains that he was using inside information to bet primarily on other referees' games. Griffin, however, says the data makes it clear that Batista and other bettors who were betting on Donahue's picks were only betting on games Donahue was refereeing, games Donahue could personally control. Can you take us through one more time your definition of literal interpretation?
2: I mean, the, the definition of a, a foul or violation and how it's written in the rule book, there isn't any gray areas there. It either is a foul or it's not a foul. It's not a situation where you're looking at the score or the time on the clock and, and taking that into account. You're really not supposed to do that.
1: So I think that's a key distinction. With, with your games that you bet on, you were calling the games by the rules, correct? Right. Who are the other referees? that you were friends with, that you would call to shoot the shit with and, and have those conversations just trying to understand the broader NBA? You know, Javi, uh,
2: Callahan, Wunderlich, Foster, Robinson, Zielinski, all those guys that we had a tight-knit bunch of people that we would just be bored and talk to each other and talk about the games.
1: And none of them had any idea that you were betting on games? None. None of them, during the games you were refing had any idea that you had money on these games? Not that I'm aware of. What does that speak to as far as the game of basketball goes?
2: No, I think it just shows that I was doing what the NBA wanted done and how they wanted the games called. And unfortunately for me, I took that inside information because I knew the lines were way off because of that and was able to pick the games at 80% correct.
1: Can a skilled referee such as yourself influence the outcome of a game without making one incorrect call?
2: I don't know how you would do that. It influence the outcome of a game if you're if you're not making incorrect calls.
1: It goes to the subjectivity of the NBA. Right. So, and literal interpretation. Sure,
2: if you know there's a situation where there's bang-bang plays, block charges, and they can go either way and you're consistently giving it to one team, yeah, you can definitely influence the outcome of a
1: game that way. This is where the interview with Donahue starts to get a little contentious. You might remember earlier when I asked Donahue if a good referee can manipulate a game within the rules.
2: I mean, I think uh, any chance you got to help a player or hurt a player, you know, based on your relationship with that player, within the rules, you could do it.
1: He answered without an issue. But now, when I ask, Can a skilled referee such as yourself influence the outcome of a game without making one incorrect call? I get pushback. Last year, your best friend Tommy Martino wrote a book about the scandal titled Inside Game. In it he said, I also want the world to know what really happened in the three months during which we rewrote the book on influencing influencing professional
5: professional sports. I'm going to Stop. stop short of saying fixing because there's a fine line between fixing and influencing. The question of fixing is for Tim Donaghy only, and in my eyes if he were fixing he would have won all the games he gave us. Tim told me he could influence a game six points either way. Take Take
1: that as you wish, but that's what he told me. What do you say to that?
2: I don't ever recall
1: saying that to him and I don't know why he wrote it in the book. Okay. Do you agree with what Tommy said regarding the fine line between fixing and manipulating?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've always said, you know, fixing is different than manipulating the game. And I felt like that's what the NBA did. And that's what a lot of the referees did was manipulate the game. I I think if you were out fixing the games, you would have put the star players to the bench on phantom calls to, to make sure their team was at a major disadvantage.
1: Fixing, manipulating. Much like foul calls, these concepts are also subjective. The data strongly suggests that Donahue fixed games. But outside of a confession, he'll always be able to deny it. Fixing games doesn't have to be obvious. You don't have to put a star player on the bench. You can fix a game subtly. As Michael Franzese said, it can be virtually undetectable. So how do we cut through the noise to find clear answers in the story? What was your working relationship like with Tommy?
2: I mean, what's there not to like about Tommy? You know, he's the guy that has uh, anything you need and uh, everybody likes him and it just, Every time you were with him, it was just a barrel
1: last. I'd met Tommy a few times before, and it's true. He's the life of the party. If you've seen Goodfellas, he's Joe Pesci, minus the temper. I knew we'd interview Tommy at some point, but he insisted that we fly him down to Sarasota. More than anything, even though their stories are sometimes at odds, I think Tim just wanted an excuse to hang out with his buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Italian, yeah. yeah. Martino, yeah. hey. <laughs> so, the game
5: last night. Oh yeah. So I know the bookmakers killed it on that game. Yeah. Because everybody had San Francisco, so everybody bet San Fran last night. They thought that they were gonna kill Seattle. Right. But I like the points. Most part. Yeah. And you watch the whole game yeah. to see how Seattle, when it was going in at halftime. The,
1: the next morning, our crew was setting up to interview Tommy. When Donahue announced that he had to leave for a doctor's appointment. Already mic'd up, Tommy and I started talking. This is good that Tim left. I I agree. When he said he had a doctor's appointment this time of the day, I was like, perfect. 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 Tommy, no distractions. Yep. It looks good. There's certain things that Tim says that we have to examine uh, objectively. There's some things I believe are unequivocally 100% true. I believe that. All the stuff yeah. with the scandal yeah. and, and what you guys... fabricate fabricates a lot. Yeah.
5: like the amount of money you got and shit.
1: You know, with Tim, it's you know he wants the he wants everything to be told uh, a certain way, right. and, that's, and he's been doing it for ten years, that's and it. I get it. This guy stick by it. it 's what he told the feds. The he fed? doesn't want to look like a liar. The point of this is not to prove that Tim fixed games. Like that's not. I I think what's interesting is looking at the influencing games versus fixing games. That is interesting, right? Because that's what I asked him at the end. Can you influence a game? by refing by the rule book? And the answer is yeah. Uh, you know, that's fucking interesting. Yeah. It's not his fault that the NBA is that subjective. Right? So,
5: <clears throat> Tim, influencing, he used to tell me that, right? If he saw somebody's foot close to the inline, line, would blow the whistle it was for our team that we had.
1: Is that influencing or is that fixing, Tim? You know? Close to or on? Was it close? Close, close. To?
5: If it was our guy, it was on. Well,
1: I think that's where it so that gets interesting, interesting, right?
5: I can never say you fix them. Is that influencing or
1: fixing? If you're taking Tim by his definition, then I think that would be okay. fixing. Right? Right. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Madica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Colo Casio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespested. Co-producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord and the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bogakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, thank you to Liz Livingston and Tali Ravid for your invaluable insights and for never letting us give up on this story. For more information about the podcast, visit whistleblowerpod.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, five stars preferably, and review. Thanks.